For fourteen days the sun never shone, as the Apostle Paul and his company endured the first raging storm of the Mediterranean winter. As their ship was driven along by the winds of the tempest, the mariners had given up all hope of being saved. But Paul was not so easily defeated. Welcome to the Bible Study Hour, a radio and internet broadcast with Dr. James Boyce, preparing you to think and act biblically. Though the crew despaired in the midst of the unrelenting wind and waves, Paul stood calm and firm, assuring them that none would be lost if they would only follow his instructions, as the apostle had heard from the God who controls the storm. Keep listening as Dr. Boyce chronicles the great storm in Paul's journey and how it serves as an illustration of how we're to face the storms that come our way. We come in our study of Acts to chapter 27, which contains the account of a great storm on the Mediterranean that overtook the ship that was bearing Paul to Rome. It was a literal storm, of course, but I want to begin what we have to say by pointing out that it is also a very valid illustration or symbol of the many storms that come naturally into the lives of Christian people. The idea of being overtaken by storms in life is one that has appealed to poets, among them our hymn writers. And if you think over the hymns that you know, I'm sure it won't take very long before you come up with some that develop the theme. I think for example of this one, though the angry surges roll on my tempest-driven soul, I am peaceful for I know wildly though the winds may blow, I have an anchor safe and sure that can evermore endure. Or this one, the Lord's our rock and him we hide shelter in the time of storm, secure whatever hills betide a shelter in the time of storm. Often in life when things are going well, we think that we're exempt from storms or we perhaps persuade ourselves that the storms of life, though they touch others, will never touch us. But they do. Time does come when those storms that have broken on the head of other people break on us as well. And the question that comes in such times is this, are you anchored to the rock? Do you trust the one who is able to pilot you through those tempestuous seas? Now that was the case with Paul, literally, in his case, but also figuratively as well. And as we look at the story, I want you to see how he prevailed in the midst of the storms and how you can do so also. I do want to say by way of introduction that this is a most unique chapter. As you read it, I'm sure that is perfectly evident. It is one of those rare glimpses into a special aspect of ancient life that you just do not find in equal measure anywhere else. Historians have pointed to this text as one of the great passages of antiquity to describe what it was like to sail, literally, by sea in the ancient world. There was a man, I've mentioned him before, Sir Michael Ramsey, 
who at the instigation of a group of unbelieving people in his day in the last century set out to examine the various places the Apostle Paul went during his missionary journeys and to compare the book of Acts which recounts those journeys with what he could discover from his investigation of the site. No doubt the people who encouraged him to do that thought, being of little faith, that they would soon show how unreliable the book of Acts was. As Ramsey, who turned out to be a very great scholar, investigated the sites that Luke reports, he discovered, much to the consternation of the unbelievers, that Luke was an eminently reliable historian. All the places he describes in his book are quite accurate. And at no point is it more the case than his description here of this voyage of the Apostle Paul to Rome. It is absolutely accurate in terms of the navigating skills and the details of the ship's uh, construction and the way in which it was sailed in storm that we know now from other sources also. There's a very good reason why Luke has this so accurately, of course, and that is because so far as we can tell from the story, he was along on the voyage. And having a scientific mind, we speak of Luke the physician, he no doubt made it his business to inquire of the mariners how things were done. You read the story, and apparently he took part as well as some of the others did in some of the operations designed, if possible, to save the ship. I say we know Luke was along because this is the third and last of the three sections in the book where he introduces his own presence in the narrative by use of the plural pronoun we. The first time that occurred was in chapter 16. That is where Paul received the Macedonian vision and went over into Europe from Asia. And it's at that point that Luke indicates his presence by saying, we were there. Before this, it is Paul and his companions, and they, now it's we. Luke apparently was from Macedonia, so when the party went on after their missionary work there, Luke stayed behind and the narrative changes once again, and now it's told in the third person. The second time we pick up Luke is when the party left Macedonia for the last time to make the final trip to Jerusalem, and there in the 20th chapter, which begins the account of that, we find the we again. So Luke apparently was laboring in Macedonia, and then with the large party that went to bear the offering to the saints in Jerusalem, he went along. And now here he is again. We, he says. There was another man with them, Aristarchus, significantly enough, from Macedonia. So probably also a friend of Luke's. These two friends went along with Paul and Luke, as I said, the man who quite obviously had a scientific mind, observed very carefully what was done and recorded it in this magnificent story. Now, I want to say one other thing by way of introduction. Whenever we come to this story with this storm, it's very hard not to think of those other times in Scripture when we are told of people being caught at sea in the midst of a storm. There are four of them, as far as I know, including this one. Two of them are from the Gospels, and they have to do with the disciples and the Lord Jesus Christ on the Sea of Galilee in a storm. Now, these stories are told at different places in the four Gospels, but both of them occur in the Gospel of Matthew, which is the most comprehensive of the Gospels. 
And there you have one of the accounts in chapter 8, verses 25 to 27, and you have the second account in chapter 11, verses 22 to 33. The first one was the time in which the Lord Jesus Christ, having labored energetically, was so exhausted as he came to the end of the day that he fell asleep in the boat. And as they were making their way on across the Sea of Galilee, a storm overtook them. The waves were crashing into the small boat that was carrying Jesus and the disciples, and the disciples were so afraid for their lives, they thought they were going to perish, and they woke up Jesus. And they said to him, Master, don't you care that we perish? And he replied by saying, O ye of little faith. And then he stood in the boat in the midst of the storm. He rebuked the wind and the waves, saying, Peace, be still. And instantly the waves quieted down. And the conclusion of that story is the question on the disciples' part when they said, What manner of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? And then a little later on in this story, in the 11th chapter, you have a similar account where on this occasion the Lord sent them on across the sea ahead of him, he himself saying that he would join them later on the other side. While they were crossing the sea in the storm in the middle of the night, suddenly they saw Jesus coming to them walking upon the water. That's the incident in which Peter, now having grown a bit in his faith, saw Jesus walking and said, well, if Jesus can do that, if Jesus wants me to do it, I can do it too. So he said, Master, bid me come to you. And Jesus said, come. And he got out of the boat. He started to walk toward him, but he got his eyes off Jesus. He began to look at the waves. His faith began to falter, and as his faith faltered, he began to sink. And he would have sunk and drowned if Jesus hadn't been there. He reached out his hand, took Peter by the arm, lifted him up, and then brought him back into the ship. Now, I mention those two stories because they show the growth of faith of one who is a disciple of Jesus Christ and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ there, in the first case, in the boat and later walking upon the water to keep a servant of his in difficulty. The disciples didn't have much faith. In the beginning, they hardly had any faith at all. They were still asking the question, what manner of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? What Jesus did no doubt caused their faith to grow and perhaps in some cases even to blossom or come into being. But you see, there you have the case of a person, a believer, starting out in the Christian life and growing as the Lord demonstrates his power over nature. The storm that overtook Jonah is the one we probably know best. Jonah was trying to run away from God. God had told Jonah to go and preach in Nineveh, which was in exactly the opposite direction. And Jonah didn't like the Ninevites, so he started out for Tarshish. He said, I'm just not going to do what God says. And God sent this great storm to overtake the ship that was bearing him away. There are a lot of lessons in that story, and it's worth just commenting on them briefly. First of all, the same God who was able to calm the storm in the first two stories, peace be still, is the God who will stir the storm up when we're disobeying him. God can bring tranquility to your life, and often does. But if you run away from him, he is able to make your life a turmoil because he has determined that you will go in his way. And if you decide that you don't want to do it, he'll stir things up so it becomes most uncomfortable. And sometimes it gets worse and worse as our obedience persists. And then secondly, there is the obvious 
point of the story that although Jonah paid for his fare and got on board the ship to go to Tarshish, he never got to where he was going. And when I've uh, preached on that on prior occasions, I pointed out that he didn't get his money back either. It's always that way in the Christian life when you try to run away from God. You never get where you're going and you always pay your fare. By the reverse, when you go God's way, he generally pays your fare for you and he always sees that you get where you're going. But Jonah, in his disobedience, didn't learn that lesson. Then there is a third lesson as well, and it's that Jonah's disobedience brought those who were with him into great peril. It wasn't only Jonah who was about to drown on the ship. The mariners were about to drown as well. And the only reason they were spared is because Jonah, at least to this degree, came to his senses and said to them, throw me overboard because it is for my sake that the storm has come upon you. They didn't want to do it. That isn't the way you treat your passengers, generally. But in the end, they came around. They saw that they were all going to drown. If they didn't do it, they thought, well, maybe it would work. Maybe he knows what he's talking about. And they threw him overboard, and then the waves were still. And there's a lesson in that, which I mention, because it's quite a contrast to what happens with the Apostle Paul in this story. Now, here's the fourth of these great storms at sea. And the lessons in this account are equally great, perhaps in some ways even greater than the others. The details of the sailing are interesting, but it is far more helpful to study this with a map before you. To begin with, they took two ships. They set out on one that was working its way up the eastern coast of the Mediterranean, gradually making its way around to the west, but having great difficulty because at this time of year, it was the fall, the feast that is mentioned here, the fast, was in the fall in the month of October, and sailing got very difficult and dangerous on the Mediterranean at that time. The prevailing winds were from the west, so to go from west to east was all right, but to go from east to west was exceedingly difficult. And beside that, the storm season came early in November, and at that time, all sailing on the Mediterranean ceased for the winter. They just pulled the boats up on shore. They didn't launch them again until the spring. But here they are trying to get to Rome, and so they're doing the best they can. And on this little ship, they make their way up the coast to this town of Myra, having very slow going, but eventually at that point changing to a larger ship, an Alexandrian ship. It would have been a grain ship taking grain from Egypt, where it grew readily and in abundance to Rome, which was always in need of grain. And this large ship then tried to carry on the voyage, making its way on toward the west. They had gone north of Cyprus, and then they tacked back and forth trying to get further west. They finally got to Crete. They made their way around the southern edge of the island. They stopped at that little town of Fair Havens, which interestingly enough was not very fair, and of course that's the point of the story. Sometimes uh, little towns that don't have very much to offer at all have a chamber of commerce, and the chamber of commerce says we're going to get people to come and settle here and investment to come and visitors to pass through and increase the tourism industry. We have to name ourselves with a good name, and so they take a grandiose name. That's what they had done here. They called this place Fair Havens, but it was really a dump. The sailors said, look, if we get stuck here, it's going to be a long, hard winter. We don't want to be here waiting for the good 
weather and the good winds to come in the spring. You know, there's a nicer place a little further on up along the coast. Let's see if we can make it before we have to stop sailing for the winter. Paul, you know the story, said God had no doubt warned him about it, that they shouldn't do that, that the winds would be contrary. But captains of sailing ships don't listen to landlubbers, certainly not preachers. As a matter of fact, people very rarely listen to preachers about anything. That's the way they treated Paul. What does he know? They said, well, sure, we can do it. And there was a gentle little breeze, and they started out. The story tells how they ran into this great, terrible storm on the Mediterranean that caused winds and waves to blow and rage day after day, so that, as Luke goes on to tell the story, there was a period of 14 days in which they didn't even see the sun or the stars. They were driven on in the clouds and dark, not knowing where they were being driven, but simply letting the ship ride before the wind. Now, it's at that point in the story that I stop, because I want you to see a very interesting contrast. First of all, verse 20, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. Now, that's the first verse. Now, I want you to notice the words of Paul that come immediately after that. After the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and he said, Man, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now, I urge you to keep up your courage. Next verse, do not be afraid. Isn't that an interesting contrast? Here they are in the midst of the terrible storm. The mariners who know how to sail ships are so discouraged and frightened that they give up all hope of being saved. And at that moment, this preacher, who presumably knew very little about sailing, stands up and says, take courage, do not be afraid. Now, the reason I focus on that is because in the context of Paul's address to those on shipboard on this occasion, we have a great statement of principles by which you and I as Christians can do the same thing in the midst of life's storms. We may not be, probably we never will be, in the midst of a literal storm like this, one that is life-threatening, but you and I know storms. Storms come into life, and sometimes they come quite suddenly, and they're quite fierce. One day we're in perfect health, and then suddenly there's a pain, and we find ourselves within a matter of hours in the hospital, and the diagnosis is quite grim. The doctor says, we've examined you, and you have cancer, a storm in life. One day we're sitting in our home at the table, eating, everything is well, the telephone rings. Someone on the other end says, I'm sorry, I have bad news for you, but so-and-so, husband, wife, mother, father, child, so-and-so has been killed in a tragic accident, and so the storms come. Now the question is, how do you stand up in life's storms? Sometimes there are things that happen to other people that affect us. Sometimes there are things that happen to us personally, and the storms are going to come. Now I want you to see from what Paul said why Paul was able to respond to this situation differently. Notice what he says, verse 23, But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God, whose I am and whom I serve, stood beside me and said, Don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, 
and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me, although we must run aground on some island. Now, what are the principles? Here's the first one. First principle is that Paul knew that God was with him. You see, an angel of the Lord appeared to him on that occasion. It was great, powerful evidence of God's presence. And yet Paul was well aware, not only at this, but also at other times, that God was with him, and we should be aware of that as well. The Lord Jesus Christ, when he was about to leave this world for the final time and was giving his great commission to his disciples, said that all authority in heaven and earth had been given to him, and that in the exercise of that authority, he was sending them into all the world with the gospel to teach all people, all nations, what he had taught them, and that as they came to faith, they were to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And he concluded by saying, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. So our situation in regard to the presence of God is no different from the situation of the Apostle Paul. Here on this occasion, an angel appeared to him. On other occasions, the Lord himself is said to have appeared to him. But the message was always the same, and the message is the same one that comes to us. I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. And this is what Christians have found as they have gone through the trials and storms of life. They testify again and again. If you have not gone through great storms in your life, perhaps you don't know this. You will, however, in time, because these things come. The Christians have testified again and again that in the midst of these storms, God was with them with the presence that was, there is no other word for it, absolutely supernatural. God quieted their heart. He assured them that he was with them and made himself known to them in small ways, but which in the situation were so significant that the individuals could testify afterwards that God did just those little details to reassure them that he was there. And so I, I ask because in our lives, it's not always the big storms that affect us. Sometimes it's just the little storms that throw us off base. I ask the question, do you know that God is with you? Are you aware of his presence? He tells you that he is. You can take it on faith, but are you really aware of that? You see, when the storms come, that is going to make all the difference. And then there is a second principle that we also see in the story, and that is that Paul knew that he belonged to God. See, not only did he say, last night an angel of God stood beside me, but when he mentioned God, he began to identify that God, and he said, it's the God whose I am. That is, I am not my own. I am bought with a price, and I belong to him. In one of his sermons, Donald Gray Barnhouse, in dealing with this particular passage, began to explore the ways in which we belong to God using the great images of Scripture. I wonder if you've ever thought of these images along those lines. We belong to God as the bride belongs to the bridegroom, because we, the church, are the bride of Christ, and we are his. He gave himself for us. He died that we might be redeemed and become his, and so we belong to him in that way. It's a precious, beautiful picture. Nothing is going to tear the bride from the arms of Jesus Christ. Secondly, we belong to God as a child belongs to the Father, because we're God's children. He has engendered us. He has brought about spiritual life in us, and now we are God's spiritual sons and daughters. What would you think of a father who sees something happening to his child and is simply unconcerned? 
and walks off the other way and says, well, you know, that child's just going to have to take care of himself or herself. You'd think, well, that's not a very good father. We recognize in human life that we need to care for our children, and we do. Father sees his child being hit or taken advantage of or persecuted in some way. Any decent father comes immediately to the rescue of the child. And if we think that way, even though we respond imperfectly, we can be certain that God does. So there you have uh, another image that shows how we belong to God and how he cares for us. There is a third image in Scripture, and that is that we belong to God as the sheep belong to the shepherd. Recall Jesus telling about the shepherd who loses one of his sheep, and although he has 99, the last one is missing, and he goes out at night to find that sheep, and he searches until he brings that sheep back. Now, if that's the nature of our God, if that's the nature of Jesus Christ, then to say, as Paul does in this context, an angel of the God whose I am is not a throwaway line. This is something that is powerful, and I ask the question of you the same way I followed up on the first of these principles, do you know that you belong to God? You do, you see, that makes all the difference. It'll help you in the storms of life, and it'll certainly help you in the midst of temptation. We're God's property. That's one way of looking at it. And I think of a story of a man who used to say whenever temptation came upon him or people were giving him trouble, he used to look up to heaven and pray and say, God, do you know that they're attacking your property? And that did a great deal to help him through the difficulty. You are the property of God. You belong to him. And if you know that, that is going to make a great difference. The third principle is this. Paul was aware that he was in God's service. He was about God's business. That's the next phrase, you see. Last night, an angel of the God whose I am and whom I serve stood behind me. Now, God had told him what he was to do. He was to bear witness in Rome. He hadn't gotten to Rome yet. doesn't take an Einstein to figure out the conclusion of that. God had told him that he was going to serve God in Rome, bearing a witness there. And if he wasn't yet in Rome, then this storm that was battering the ship on which he sailed was not going to mean the end of his life because God was going to preserve him. God was going to take him to Rome, and therefore God would deliver him from the storm. Now, you and I, I am sure, don't have special revelations of that nature. God is not in most cases, I am sure, said anything, even from Scripture, to indicate that you and I have a certain length of service, though in some cases that may perhaps be true. But what we can know is this. As long as God has work for us to do, God is going to preserve our lives to do it. Doesn't that follow? God is not frustrated. If God ordains work for us to do, then God's going to keep us alive to do it. Again, you don't have to be a genius to figure out how that operates. And let me say this, if we have finished the work that God has for us to do, then why do we want to linger around here any longer? We want to go on to heaven as soon as possible, and until then, we want to be about our Father's business. I mentioned Donald Gray Barnhouse a few moments ago. I do recall a little motto that he used during the First World War. He was in the service at the time. He had done some flying. I understand, and on the fuselage of the plane that they were flying, he painted a motto that was borrowed from one of the Psalms, though it was changed somewhat. 
uh, to gain the effect, and it went like this. Ours is not to fight and die, ours to live and testify, because God had indicated to him that he was to be a preacher, and that particular mission in life, in his case, was not done. As long as there is testimony for you to give, as long as there is service for you to render, as long as there is work for you to do, you will not die, and God will see you through whatever storm you are facing. Moreover, he will bring you through it triumphantly as you look to him. The final point of these four points comes just a little bit later in Paul's speech where he says toward the end, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. You see, Paul knew God. It wasn't only that God was with him or that he belonged to God or that God had given him work to do. He also knew that God was the sovereign God, the God of circumstances, and therefore he was able to trust God, not just in the little things of life, but in every circumstance. In the storms of life? Yes, in the storms of life. When I have cancer? Yes, when I have cancer. When I lose my job? Yes, yes, when I lose my job. These things are not mountains of experience to God. They're merely circumstances that he brings into our lives, not by accident, but as he says in Romans, for our good. For the unsaved, it's not that way. These things come. Storms of life break upon their heads. The waves roll over, and like the chaff, they're carried away. But for the Christian, you see, all things work together for good to those who love God. I want you to see one other thing about this, and that is that because of the faith Paul had and what he knew in God, he was able to be of some use to the others. I find that very interesting, and especially when I think back to the story of Jonah and make the contrast. Jonah was running away from God. He wasn't trusting God. He wasn't on God's service. As a matter of fact, he was doing exactly the opposite. And so when the storm came to batter the ship that was trying to carry Jonah to Tarshish, they hunted for Jonah, and he wasn't even around. He was down below. In the hold of the ship, he was fast asleep like many Christians. And they were in danger, you see. He was no use to them. Here, in the case of Paul, Paul was obeying God. Paul was sheltered by God. And so when the storm broke, Paul emerged. You see it in the story. It's very clear to be the real leader in these desperate circumstances. And so he could not only give testimony to his faith, saying, I know God, and God has appeared to me, and this is what is going to happen. He even gets to be so practical as saying, verse 33, just before dawn, now, men, we're going to be crashing here in a few moments. You're going to have to keep up your strength, so let's, uh, let's all have some breakfast here before we have to swim to shore. There is practical Christianity. You see, sometimes people say of Christians they're so heavenly-minded they're of no earthly use. It is the heavenly-minded people that are of earthly use. People that are earthly-minded are of no use whatsoever when the storms break. And here was Paul being most effective. I don't think the world has any awareness whatsoever how much it owes to the presence of Christians in its midst. Here were the soldiers and sailors, the mariners, the prisoners, all of them, their lives were spared because of Paul. And yet afterwards, I'm sure when it was all over, many of them went away and they never thought about it again. And yet God was gracious to them because God was determined to preserve his own servant and use him greatly. You think of Sodom 
and Gomorrah. You think of the pleading of Abraham with God on that occasion. God was willing to spare the whole city of Sodom and Gomorrah for the sake of ten righteous persons if they could be found there. There weren't ten, and the judgment fell. I am sure that God is sparing America for all its sin, all its waywardness, all its materialism, all its blasphemy, all its sheer determination to, as much as possible, eliminate any vestige of God from national life. I'm sure God is sparing our country because of the remnant of the believers who are found here. And if you're among that remnant, if you're a believer, it's your task in the midst of the storms which will come on our nation as well as upon ourselves as individuals to bear testimony to that God who is able to keep his own in turmoil. You know, the Lord Jesus, not long before his arrest and crucifixion, gave a sermon on the Mount of Olives, and on that occasion he spoke of the times of wars and rumors of wars that would be coming. He said these things will come. It's a way of saying life is filled with trouble, and you will experience your share of it. But he said to them, when you hear of wars and rumors of war, see that you be not troubled. Not troubled by war, with all of its calamity, not troubled by the storms of life, as difficult as those storms may be, not troubled by sickness and disease and persecution and loss of jobs and everything else that we can imagine. Yes, see that you be not troubled. Why? Because God is the God of circumstances, and he is able, and indeed he does, keep his people in the midst of them. And it's their great task and responsibility to bear witness to that. It's your task to bear witness to that while God permits you to remain in this world. Let us pray. Father, we ask for your blessing upon us as the result of what we've studied. Many of us read this, and there are no storms in our lives at the moment. And so we read it and think about it somewhat academically. We think, yes, yes, that's true. But there are others who are going through these things, and others who have gone through them, and all of us who one day will. And we pray, we ask that as we think of these things, you will take them and so ingrain them in our lives that we'll be able to live as the saints do live when the storms of life break, and so bring glory to the God whose we are and whom we serve, that others might find him as Savior also. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from the Bible Study Hour, a listener-supported ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance is a coalition of believers that hold to the historic creeds and confessions of the Reformed faith and who proclaim biblical doctrine in order to foster a Reformed awakening in today's church. To learn more about the Alliance, select the appropriate link at thebiblestudyhour.org. Write to us at 600 Eden Road. Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601. Your financial support makes our broadcasting, publishing, online, and event ministries possible. Please consider making a gift at our websites by phone at 1-800-488-1888 or by mail. Canadian listeners can reach us at P.O. Box 24097, RPO Josephine. 
North Bay, Ontario, P1B0C7. Thank you for your prayers and gifts, and for listening to the Bible Study Hour, preparing you to think and act biblically.